This is Efficiently Effective. I'm Saskia Wiedler. You are a smart creature. You can do amazing things. You can find meaning in abstract data. You build products that enable people to reach their goals. All thanks to your amazing brain. Over millions of years, our brains have become highly efficient. For a brain, efficiently means taking shortcuts. Cognitive bias is a collection of shortcuts in your brain. They help you to process information faster. So when you come eye to eye with a saber-toothed tiger, your eyes register an aggressive-looking animal, long sharp teeth and a strong build. You instinctively know you should run for your life. Now, if you see a bunny with its eyes further apart and a more innocent look, you instinctively know you're good. You might try to pet it or (laughs) eat it, maybe. Your brain uses cognitive bias to make that snap judgment. So in the past, cognitive bias helped us to survive in the wild. Nowadays, the chances of running into saber-toothed tigers are significantly lower. But the shortcuts to help us survive are still there. Wikipedia lists 166 variations of cognitive bias. They all influence our thinking in their own way. They fill in the gaps when we don't have enough information. They tell us what's more valuable based on how information is presented. Cognitive bias makes you decide quickly. Who's a friend or a foe? What's normal and what isn't? Which information is true and which is fake news? You can see how these judgments might lead to racism, sexism and many other isms. Suddenly, these shortcuts have become a lot less innocent. We have to be really careful not to bake these biases into our work. But that's not so easy. Today, you'll hear from content strategist Sarah Wachter-Batcher, who helps her clients make their products more inclusive by taking the effects of cognitive bias into account. First, you'll meet David Dylan Thomas, who creates the Cognitive Bias Podcast, a great resource if you want to learn more about the many flavors of cognitive bias. My name is David Dylan Thomas, and uh, I uh, work as a senior experience designer at a company called Think Company. Um, And most of what I do there involves using uh, content strategy uh, to make projects better. I work with a team who are skilled at UX and visual design and web development, and uh, we collaborate on great design solutions. Um, so uh, I became kind of uh, interested in cognitive bias uh, in part because of that work. And I now host uh, a cognitive uh, bias podcast that's called, wait for it, The Cognitive Bias Podcast. It wasn't a lot of imagination going into <laughs> the titling of it. Uh, but yeah, I, I uh, talk uh, every week about, I uh, just pick one cognitive bias and focus in on it for about 10 minutes, try to give an example of it in real life, talk a little bit about the research that's been done on it, and when possible, talk about uh, solutions, although rarely there's there, it, rarely is there something you can really do about it besides just know that it's happening. Yeah, I think that in a way, maybe the title, Cognitive Bias Podcast, is the in a way the most bias-free title you could give it. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Like I hadn't thought of it that way. It's funny. The the reason it has that title is because um, I had been, uh, uh, I'll, I'll tell you a bit of the backstory. So I went to a uh, South by Southwest um, talk um, about um, uh, gender equality by design. And the idea was, and it's a fantastic talk, definitely look this up on YouTube. 
the basic idea of the talk is that there are certain like design solutions that you can implement that sort of you know opt for a good social outcome. So for example, when you're at a hotel and you leave the room um, and the lights just turn off by themselves, you know that's the hotel saying you know we could put up a sign that says please turn off the lights when you leave or you know what we could just take care of that for you like don't even think about it we'll we'll make you green <laughs> just because of the way that we've designed the the system so similarly there are sort of design choices you can make and we'll talk a, you know a little bit more about these later um, when it comes to gender bias um, that can kind of you know not eliminate but really kind of curb or, or in some cases not even give it the opportunity to biases. So, so an example would be um, blind resumes, right? That uh, time and time again, studies have shown that uh, when people see a name at the top of the resume that colors how they look at the resume. And depending on what the job is, right, they'll already have an idea in their head of who should be in that position, right? So if it's a web developer, a lot of hiring managers have in their head this picture of a white male. So if they see a name that doesn't sound like a white male, um, even if, and this is the study, right, even if the actual qualifications, right, all of the content below the name is exactly the same, they will more more likely hire or move along in the process the white male name than the non-white male name. Um, which is ridiculous, right? Like, like it's totally illogical. So one design approach to that is to say, you know what? You don't really need the name. That that's not going to help you decide whether or not you think this person is qualified. That's adding that's adding no useful information. And in fact, it's you know it's noise. It's you know signal to noise. It's noise. It's actually making it harder for you to make a rational decision. I'm just going to remove that possibility. And a really uh, uh, just fascinating uh, story here with that: the city of Philadelphia recently implemented blind resumes. Uh, as a pilot for some of their uh, web developer positions. And they found two really interesting things. One was uh, the best way to redact the name from a resume is to actually print it out and have like an intern who isn't involved in the hiring process take a marker and actually redact it the way you would like, you know, a CIA document or something um, and, then, and then pass it along. Uh, but the other interesting part of that uh, was that uh, the problem they ran into is that once you look at the resume, you, you don't know the name, you look at the resume, you decide this person's probably qualified, you want to see their work, right? When you're hiring a developer, typically you go to GitHub to find out like what kind of work they've done. The problem is the second you get to GitHub, guess what happens? You see their like personal information, now all of a sudden you're biased, you're seeing whether or not they're a man or a woman and all these other things. So they did a really clever thing. They wrote a script, uh, basically a Google, uh, a Chrome plugin, which before the page loads, it obscures all of the personal information. So, and this ends, and, you know, just to complete the loop, that code is now available on GitHub. So anyone who wants to do that kind of hiring, you know, if you're out there and you're trying to do some blind hiring, find this code and you'll be able to uh, find this plugin, you'll be able to use it on GitHub. So I thought that was pretty cool. But that's, that talk, right, inspired me to sort of learn more about cognitive bias. And um, I started... There are so many cognitive biases. I started um, going through this list I found on uh, Rational Wiki of, I don't know, maybe 100, 200 cognitive biases. Um, and I just started saying, okay, I'm going to look at one of these a day. I'm just going to Google it, like find out what I can about it, you know, in a relatively short amount of time. Um, but uh, I'm going to find out everything I can about these one by one by one. And as I started doing that, I started talking about it with friends, and I became the guy in the room who, who's always talking about cognitive bias. And I had this other friend, uh, Emily, who every time I brought it up said, you've got to do a podcast. You've got to do a podcast. And after about the 10th time, I was like, fine, I'll do a podcast. <laughs> so I had this one Friday afternoon free, and I was like, oh, I, 
all right, I, I, I will do this as long as it doesn't take me like, you know, two hours. Like, I'll just do this. I already know the, I already know about the bias. I'll just, I'll just do this. What am I going to call it? I don't know. Just the cognitive bias podcast. Like I'm setting up my SoundCloud account, right? Now, like I'm just, what am I going to call this? I don't know. It's a cognitive bias podcast. I'll come up with a better title later. And that's literally how it got that, right? It was just <laughs> me saying, uh, I'm just going to start talking. Uh, and if you listen to the pilot, you can hear, like, I'm kind of making it up as I go. Like, uh, this is the Cognitive Bias Podcast. Sure, why not? <laughs> you know? And it just kind of stuck. Um, so, yeah. so you know, it's good for search. <laughs> uh, at the same time, though, I don't want to pretend like I have the same level of expertise or insight um, or clinical experience as, you know, an actual psychologist. Um, and to punctuate that point, like, my wife is an actual pediatric neuropsychologist. Like, she actually does this for a living. <laughs> like, I, you know, I don't pretend to be, you know, playing at that level. But I, I, I describe myself as a fan, right? <laughs> so, like, you know, if people who are, like, really into Lord of the Rings or really into Doctor Who, I'm really into cognitive bias and, and Doctor Who. But I'm really into, into cognitive bias. And, like, you know, like any fan, I spend hours online reading about every little subtlety of this, that, or the other. Because it, it just fascinates me that... Um, well, part of it is uh, when I look at things like social injustice, when I look at things like you know racial bias, um, and I'm black, so I sort of have skin in the game, you know, not to put too fine a point on it when it comes to those kinds of conversations. Um, it fascinates me that some of those things, especially in this day and age, right, in the type of you know sexism and racism we encounter today, as opposed to like 50 years ago, 100 years ago, when things were much more explicit, are implicit, right, implicit bias that someone who would, if you were to ask them, would say, no, I'm not a racist at all. I'm not a sexist. They would, they would uh, be horrified that you would think that of them, would still behave in ways that are actually very sexist and very racist and not even know it. And the fact that, <clears throat> that human behavior encompasses these, beha encompasses these things that we do without even realizing we're doing them fascinates me. It, it scares me a little too, but it fascinates me. And I try to learn more about that to understand, okay, well, why did that person make that decision if, you know, in their heart of hearts, they don't think that they would ever be that kind of person. Now you are going through this whole list of cognitive biases. Do you also get like, um, how do you say it? Like x-ray vision on your day and work, on your life <laughs> and work for cognitive biases that you see in the wild? Are you like, oh, that's that one. Oh, that's that one. Uh, yeah, all, all, all the time. Uh, it's, it's, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And, you know, the ones that keep coming back, especially now, and I'm going to recommend another podcast here that does what I do, but like way better, is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Like if you like what I do, um, but you uh, want something that's going to fill like an actual car ride, um, <laughs> uh, this guy does uh, um, uh, You Are Not So Smart podcast. He's been like in a sort of longer form and more interview kind of style. Um, but uh, one of those uh, was talking about... Um, uh, fundamental attribution error. And uh, this is uh, actually, this is my wife's favorite cognitive bias. Um, everyone has their own favorite cognitive bias. Um, and what it basically says is that I'm okay, you're messed up, right? So if you see somebody um, like run a red light, um, you immediately think, oh, that person's such a scofflaw. They, they are impatient and impulsive and what a terrible person. They're, they're behaving the way they're behaving because of something internal, something, a character flaw, something internal to them. If you run a red light, oh, I was in a rush. I had to get to uh, work. I had to get to the hospital or um, I didn't want to block up the car behind me or whatever, right? Like you had a perfectly reasonable explanation that had to do with your external circumstances, right? The world around you. There's nothing wrong with you personally. It's just you were in certain circumstances. 
Now, when the other person runs the red light, you never think about their external circumstances. You just think, oh, that's a terrible person. So the fundamental attribution error attributes all this behavior to other people that you never attribute to yourself. And I see it all the time because of the day and age that we live in. So the You Are Not So Smart podcast kind of brought up this example of a George Carlin joke where um, uh, the joke is uh, uh, anyone who drives... Uh, sl anyone who drives slower than you is an idiot. Anyone who drives faster than you is a crazy person, right? And that's how we feel about ourselves politically today, right? Anyone who is more conservative than you, oh, there are some backwater, like, you know, uh, uh, racist, uh, you know, they want it to be 1950, like, terrible person. Anyone who's more liberal than you, oh, they're like a hippie, dippy, like, crazy communist, like, what, what's wrong with them? The world doesn't work that way, you know. But you, you got it figured out. You're right in just the sweet spot, right? You've got you know just the right political point of view. And increasingly, that's how we're viewing each other in, at least in America, <laughs> in, in politics, is we've gotten to this point where it's like, okay, those Trump supporters, they're just nuts. Like, but what, what is going on with them? Like, they, 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 they have nothing to offer. Um, the, the Bernie supporters, whoa, 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 slow down, commie, what are you doing there? Like, what, that's, you know, me, I'm right in the perfect spot. So no one, no one is able to have a conversation if that's how they're approaching life, right? If they're using the fundamental attribution error as the way that they view politics, you're not going to have a lot of productive conversations. Do you really think it's a timely thing? Don't you think that it's in a way also a, a human trait? Uh, something that we always do is look at each other and think that, oh, well, I'm the normal one. Like you are, oh, yeah. you yourself are the norm. That's how. Yeah, and and how we kind of see the, see the world. Yeah, and and to your point, it's a human trait, right? And it probably goes back to well, it probably goes back to several things. Another thing you will find about most cognitive biases is they have their roots in some kind of evolutionary psychology, right? Like, mm -hmm. so. Um, uh, so, like, for example, like, the pattern recognition that leads to, like, gender bias. Um, that was another th great thing about that talk that inspired me to start the podcast. Um, she talks about gender bias in terms of pattern recognition, right? So, if you're a hiring manager and every time you think about or you've seen a web developer, it was a young white male. Like, that's what your office is full of. That's what you see on TV. That's what you see in the news, whatever. That's what you see, right? So it's very, very, that, that creates a pattern in your mind. So when you see something that breaks the pattern, you're like, ah, I don't know if that's right. Let me look for something that fits the pattern. Um, and that's more of that implicit, like, no, I'm not a sexist bias. Well, maybe not. Maybe you don't think you are, but the way that the patterns in your mind basically make you one, right? You're, you're behaving in that way because of the pattern you've seen. Um, so that probably goes back to like pattern recognition is necessary for life. <laughs> like we would not be able to function as humans throughout the day if we couldn't do pattern recognition. Um, and you know, if you're, you know, a uh, hunter gatherer and you can't tell the difference between a blade of grass and a tiger, guess what's going to happen to you? You are not passing on your genes. The people who could tell the difference and like double down on pattern recognition, you know, they were very biased against tigers. Um, <laughs> they survived and they passed their genes down. So we're kind of, you know, hardwired for a lot of these behaviors that in most contexts, right, most cognitive biases are good. They're really, really good. They mean that we're functioning human beings. The problem is, you know, for example, we're not hunter-gatherers anymore. We live in societies bigger than 150 people. These things start to get problematic, right? We live in cities now. We've got to deal with all sorts of people who don't fit patterns, right? So if we behave in a way that's based on patterns with a population that big, 
that requires us to be kind to each other, that that starts to hurt, right? <laughs> that starts to be something that we have to actually be uh, make decisions about, be willful about, be mindful about, be thoughtful about, um, versus being able to just coast on our biases. Because the all a cognitive bias basically is is setting your mind on like default, right? It's sort of like the, your mind boots up and you're like, I'm just gonna leave all the defaults in place. We're fine, right? And for the most part, that works, but there are situations where that actually causes harm to people, and you have to say, no, wait, I'm going to change my uh, change my bias setting here. <laughs> I have to, and and unfortunately, you know, that's not like a one time deal. You can't sort of like flip a switch and say, oh, okay, when it comes to men and women, I'm going to turn off my pattern recognition. Not how our minds work, right? Like you have to practice actively listening and actively paying attention and actively, you know, creating these barriers to um, the bias. Yeah, you know, and eventually, like over time, you can form a habit around it and it gets easier to do, but you're never, you, you can't just like flip the bias switch and be like, okay, I'm going to be kind to humans now and, and, and not judge them. Even with a lot of training or like you do, studying up on them, don't you create some sort of immunity to their effect? I, I know too much to think that. Like the, you get to a very Zen place with this where you realize like, you know, I know nothing. I am I, I am not somehow, my knowledge doesn't somehow make me immune. It doesn't take me out of the world, right? Like, no, you're in it. Like this is the water. It's sort of like being a fish and discovering water. It's like, oh yeah, we're all doing this. I get it, you know? Um, so, and I know too much about cognitive bias. What, what it does is it makes me aware of how much I shouldn't trust myself, <laughs> right? So because I know that, Someone could walk in the room, tell me, look, Dave, you've got, you know, bias X and bias X means that you're going to um, make tea at 4 p.m. And I'll be like, there's no way I'm going to make tea at 4 p.m. You've told me now. I'm, all I have to do is not make tea at 4 p.m. It's like a time travel movie. All I have to do is not make tea at 4 p.m. Nope, I made tea at 4 p.m. Like, I just, I know now that there's nothing I can do, right, except just be aware that it's happening and then try to mitigate the damage, right? So to me, when it comes to thinking about... Um, like design and cognitive bias. There's sort of what I've seen anyways. There's sort of like two approaches. One is like that blind resume we talked about where it's like, you know what? I already know you're going to make a bad decision. <laughs> I'm just not going to give you the opportunity, right? I'm going to focus you in on the information that's relevant, which to be fair is a good content strategy principle anyway, right? Only reveal the most pertinent information. We're busy people. <laughs> just show me what actually matters, right? So there's a lot of, you know, good design principles there anyway. The other approach is to actually leverage those principles for good. So, for example, we have this bias, and it's 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 related to the availability heuristic, but the basic concept is the easier something looks, it's actually called uh, a cognitive fluency. The easier something looks, the more easy I'll think it actually is. So if I have like a set of instructions to make uh, uh, pancakes or something, right, and I hand them to you, and it's really tiny print, and there are no pictures, before you even make the pancakes, you're going to look at that like little tiny sheet of paper with all that text on it and think, I don't know what you're asking me to do, but I bet it's really hard to do. I don't want to do it. I could present that same content to you, right? How to make pancakes in a nice little YouTube video with cool graphics and like, you know, fast forwarding and all this other cool stuff. And you'd be like, you know what? Before you even watch it, that looks easy. I'm, I'm, I, I want to do that. I bet it's actually easy to do. So Regardless of how difficult the task is, because in both cases, make, making pancakes is as hard as making pancakes. That's not going to change. But the way I present it to you changes how hard you think it's going to be, right? So the way this translates, well, well, one way it translates for design is, hey, if you're designing a pancake website, use lots of pictures, right? <laughs> um, but uh, another way this translates that I think has real-world uh, impact is um, 
uh, things like font, right, and believability. So uh, if you uh, uh, print out the the uh, print out like John Kennedy was born in 1916, and then you print out John Kennedy was born in 1918, and one of those is in bold, right, and really easy to read, and the other one's kind of in tiny print, and you ask people which one is true, people will usually pick the one that's in bold. I think both of those are false. I think he was born in 1917, but anyway, <laughs> um, the, the 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 easier it is to read, the easier it is to consume the more believable it is. And the same thing with rhyming. Things that rhyme, people think are more true, right? So if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Like, that worked in part because it rhymes. People just assumed it was true. Um, that's how simple it is. But th this becomes important when or there are things you really need people to believe. So in, uh, in America, African-Americans, African generally speaking, don't believe health data from the government. This is just a thing. And it's really a terrible thing if you're trying to provide services. So there's a, I think one of the statistics was they asked, um, do you believe that the government provides um, reliable information about HIV and other health matters? And only 18% of African-Americans said yes. Like, that's scary, right? And you can easily understand how we got there. <laughs> like, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> but... Knowing that as a content producer for the U.S. government who's trying to provide services for African Americans, okay, guess what? You need to use all of the cognitive tools of the trade to make your message believable. If that means it's got to rhyme, it's got to rhyme. If that means it's got to be in bold and not in fine print, it's got to be bold and not in fine print. Like if signing up for the service has to look easy, right, make it look easy because if it looks hard, no one's going to do it. Like all of those things you uh, can then incorporate, you know, into the design um, knowing like what you're up against. You're up against a lot of distrust. You're up against a lot of biases. So cognitive bias has a huge impact on how we think and function. We can't completely deactivate cognitive bias, but being aware of its existence is half the battle. In July 2016, I attended the Design and Content Conference in Vancouver, where Sarah Wachter-Betcher gave the opening keynote it was a captivating talk about how, among other things, cognitive bias models our decision-making process and colors the products that we make. In their turn, those products impact the perspective of users by telling them what's normal, being able to identify with one of the two genders you're supposed to pick in a form. Having had a safe and happy childhood by suggesting security questions that assume just that. Sarah's talk changed my view and my work profoundly, and I thank her for that. A link to Sarah's talk can be found on efficientlyeffective.fm. My name is Sarah Wachter-Betcher, and I run a content strategy and UX consultancy. I'm based in Philadelphia. Um, I've been doing that for about the past six years, and it's actually called Rare Union. And um, I work with a lot of different clients. They range a bit from being... Um, startups to large corporations to people who are in maybe higher education or who work at think tanks or research organizations. Um, but what really tends to bring them together is that they have lots of content and they tend to have problems uh, making sense of all of it. And so my experience has really been, you know, helping organizations uh, collaborate and figure out what they're trying to do as an organization and then how content's gonna, going to actually help them get there. You kind of have this focus on cognitive bias and the effect of cognitive bias on how we do our work and how um, how our work affects how other people view the world. Um, I was wondering how you came onto that aspect, how you 
how you found your focus on cognitive bias. Yeah, so, you know, I started out doing more kind of straightforward consulting with clients' content problems. But over the years, I got really involved and interested in understanding um, the role that empathy played in our work. And then at the same time, I started noticing some problems I was having um, with biases that were built into things like forms. So uh, I was trying to fill out forms that couldn't accept my last name because it's too long and it has hyphens. And that was actually the smallest of the problems. Um, I had I encountered forms that couldn't understand, you know, complicated family histories, even though that's what they were asking for. Around the same time that that happened personally, I also um, heard from my friend Eric Meyer, who at the time was going through a hugely traumatic experience. His daughter, Rebecca, had died when she was six of an aggressive brain cancer. And after she had died, um, he experienced all of these different online services that just really were triggering his grief and his trauma over and over again because they weren't being sensitive. You know, for example, the famous one is from Facebook. Facebook's year in review was launched at the end of the same year that she had died. And what they did is they would put these little albums that Facebook had created onto your profile and say, hey, Eric, here's what your year looked like. And they would automatically insert the photo that was the most popular thing you'd posted that year. But for him, the most popular photo that year, of course, had been of his daughter. And it was a photo he had posted remembering her. And it was not just that they posted the photo that he didn't ask for, it was also that they had taken their own illustrations of people dancing at a party and streamers and balloons, and they had surrounded her photo with them. And so everything about it felt off, it felt wrong. So that was really the starting point where Eric and I were talking to each other and saying, you know, we think there's something here. We think there's something that our industry isn't paying enough attention to, and we want to help them do that. So that, at that point, just completely shifted my work and really um, has totally changed the course of my career, I think. How do you implement that then in your work? Right. So I think it's a few different things. So, um, so for one thing, I've become just a lot more aware of, you know, things I had not been thinking about in the past, things that otherwise would have just slipped by me. So I've become more aware of the assumptions that I'm building into my work. So the assumptions about who our users are or what they're going through at a given time. For example, I would say personas. I've definitely made lots of personas that show shiny, smiley, happy people. And what I've realized over the past few years is that that's often not that helpful when it comes to making sure your products work for a range of people. And so being able to look at a persona and say, well, what happens when things go wrong for this person? Or does this persona laser focus us on a really narrow perception of what our audience looks like and make us forget about people who are different? So I would say that my, my practice in some of these regards has changed dramatically. Um, it's also changed a bit how I work with clients. Um, there are definitely clients who come to me specifically because they want to talk about this, which is great. I love that. Um, but most of them aren't. Most of them come to me because they have content strategy and UX problems. However, you know, there's this subtle shift in the way that I work with them and the conversations that we have. So like, for example, um, recently I was in a conversation about content personalization with a big financial services company. So it doesn't really sound like the kind of place where everybody would be thinking about bias or inclusivity. And, you know, this is the kind of conversation that I think a lot of people in, in our field are having all the time. Um, but what was different is that we were starting to bring up things like, well, okay, but when we want to personalize content to a specific life event or stage for somebody like, oh, they're saving for retirement, for example. 
what kind of assumptions are we making about what's going on in their life? Are we starting to tell them what to do in a way that might be wholly inappropriate because we don't actually know, you know, maybe they just lost a job. Maybe they just got divorced. Those kinds of things can play a real role. And the answer isn't that we need to necessarily plan for all of those things, but to accept that we don't know the answer to all of them. And so when we personalize, we want to be really careful. We want to make sure that we're not misusing data. We're not overusing data and we're not going to alienate people or harm them. Do you have a tactic to uh, educate clients about this who are totally not aware, do you, would you advise uh, using like a shock technique? Like imagine that this would happen or uh, what, what's your go-to strategy there? You know, I, I think that it really depends on the situation. There are some clients where I can be really upfront and like tell them that this is what I'm doing. Like, hey, I think you need to be, I'm here to advise you and I think you need to be aware of this. So I'm going to advise you on it. Um, and, and it depends on the role I have with them. And if I have the role where that's how they look at me, it makes a lot of sense for me to say, you know, from my expert opinion, this is something I think you should be really worrying about. And there's potential ramifications if you don't. Um, sometimes it's a little bit of a lighter touch, though, where it's more like you tee it up and you say, you know, like, well, something that we may want to consider is and we think about, you know, what are some of those gaps or some of those problems um, and be able to identify like and we could solve that problem if we just did this little tweak. Oftentimes, you know, the first reaction people will have is like, oh, well, we can't possibly anticipate everything. And of course, you can't. Nobody nobody can do that. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times we can improve things if we, if we make like one simple tweak to the way we talk about stuff. I see this all the time with things like um, I was talking to some folks who were using um, a lot of gendered pronouns like get him this, you know, and really focusing on relationships as being sort of heterosexual relationships. And they were kind of like, well, yeah, but how could we fix that? We don't know how to fix that. And I was like, well, you could just change two words and you wouldn't have to use a gender and you don't have to write something weird. And sometimes they don't realize they're not seeing the simple solution. Mm -hmm. So when you show people the simple solution, a lot of times a little light bulb goes off and then I think all the future discussions are easier. Right. Um, something that I notice with my clients also is when I talk about cognitive bias and the impact that it has, um, is that I sometimes say like, yeah, but then we lose all the, the, the color and all the fun in our content or in our design because we might hurt someone with everything we do. Um, how do you approach that? What's your advice there? Well, I think it's important to remember why you're doing what you're doing. There are times when the goal is really around entertainment and fun. But a lot of what we do online is really actually about helping get people get things done. And I would say that prioritizing delight, um, which is oftentimes what people call this, over and above the ability of your users to get things done and to use your product, um, I think that that's a really short-term solution. And I think we're even starting to see that. You know, I think that some of the trends you've seen in things like all of those, I don't know if you're familiar, confirm shaming messages like, you know, like, oh, I guess you just don't like good deals when you don't oh, opt yeah. into the newsletter. Those are really the result of people being like, oh, we can get a short term bump in our numbers by doing this. But what you really lose over time is you lose people's 
willingness to pay attention to you, you lose sort of that credibility or that trust because you alienate people. And so I think that we're, we're going to see people really fall off when we treat them that way. Um, people are tired of being treated like that. You're seeing way more people push back mm-hmm. against tech companies that track them and overuse their data, that don't have a clear business model, that don't treat their users well. I mean, you're seeing more of that from Uber to Facebook. Criticism abounds. And I think that that's only going to increase. And that's good. I think the tech industry deserves to get that criticism and deserves to be getting pushback because that's the only thing that's going to make it better. (laughs) Two books that I want to talk to you about. First of all, um, Design for Real Life, which came out last year, 2016, right? Um, What can we learn from that? Yeah, so Design for Real Life was my collaboration with Eric Meyer. And it's a short book. It's a quick read that's really just training you to think differently, questioning assumptions, going through that process that I talked about, where you can recognize the biases and assumptions that you have and learn to do something differently with them. Um, It's really focused on helping people understand some of the common places where bias and assumption gets in the way and can make products less inclusive. So things like um, dealing with issues like gender, race, names, ethnicity, um, how we deal with people in forms, that kind of stuff. Things that are interaction um, where we tend to have a lot of interaction with user data and opportunities to really screw it up. So Design for Real Life um, is, you know, a little bit of kind of theoretical, like how to think about this stuff, and then a little bit of practical walking through some techniques for starting to put it into practice. I would say it's just a starting point, though, for getting teams to operate a bit differently and sort of approach their work from that new perspective. Your new book, Technically Wrong, how is that different then? Well, so it definitely came out of the Design for Real Life work. So... um, what happened is that after Design for Real Life came out, I you know, was doing a little bit of writing around that subject, mostly for other people in my industry. And actually, an editor from W.W. Norton came to me and she said, you know, have you ever thought about talking about this subject for an everyday mainstream audience, not professionals in the field? And I said, absolutely. Although I had never actually thought about that <laughs> until she emailed me. Um, but I, I thought about it and I said, you know, that's a really good idea. And so the book is called Technically Wrong, Sexist Apps, Biased Algorithms, and Other Threats of Toxic Tech. And what it's really about is a, it's, it's a book for anybody and everybody who engages with technology on a daily basis and who is sometimes frustrated and alienated by it and who has some questions about the role that it takes in our society. So... You know, I think that the, the reason that it's needed is that we've spent such a long time um, sort of getting used to using our phones constantly and our you know computers constantly, and we haven't spent nearly enough time uh, talking about why tech products end up the way they do. I think that lots of people in the public, when I talk to people who don't work in tech, it's not something they have that much information about or, or know that much about. And so what I really try to do is show you how the products that we rely on every day Um, reflect the biases and the limitations of the people who make them. And so I call a lot of those things to light. Some of them that I, you know, have talked about in Design for Real Life and a lot of new stuff as well. And then I talk a lot about, you know, the teams that create those products and which they're where they're mostly white, mostly male, mostly based in North America and even in a really limited part of North America. And mostly untrained to consider people who aren't like them. So Um, I talk about everything from facial recognition apps that are bad at identifying black people 
to uh, online forms that force people to define their gender and the titles when they don't need to, to, you know, something like Apple launching its health app that could track vitamin intake and chromium intake and all of these other things on a daily basis. But for an entire year after they launched it, nobody thought to have it include a period tracker, which is probably the most common health tracking that happens with people. I mean, more people track periods than any other health concern. Um, and that just had never crossed their mind. So I talk about a lot of different examples like that. And and I talk about sort of the, the reason it's really important for everybody to be paying attention because technology is so embedded in our lives. It's so embedded in our economy. It's definitely this massive piece of our you know political and social infrastructure. And we rely on it. And so if we rely on this thing that continues to not represent us and not include us, that's not going to serve us well. Really practical. Do you have any um, any tips on doing research or you know, design or content uh, and taking cognitive bias into account? Yeah, I think the first one, and I wouldn't say this is the easiest one, but it's maybe the most important one, is that you've got to work with people who aren't like you. And you also need to have people who are not like you who have power to be taken seriously on your team. I mean, I think that's one of the problems is oftentimes you like you see companies say like, oh, but we're hiring all these diverse people and they're getting hired into junior roles where they don't necessarily get taken seriously. So I think that's part of it. I think another piece of it, and this is again, hiring, so it's a big problem, is um, I think that the technology industry has spent a long time hiring people who have a technical skill set or maybe a design skill set, but not a lot of people who have a deep background in the humanities and in the social sciences. Um, we see some of that in UX for sure. And we see some of that in content strategy, but I think by and large, the tech industry and people who make digital products, even if they don't consider themselves the tech industry, um, really need to have more input from people who are deeply trained at understanding other humans um, and who also understand things like bias, who understand things like, um, you know, research methods and ethical research methods. And, and that's just, that's not part of the DNA of the tech industry yet. And I hope that that changes. So that's the biggest one. Mm -hmm. Now at a super practical level that like anybody can do in their work, I would say there's a few things. One of them is to every time you start going through and making product choices to sit down and say, okay, what are the assumptions that we have baked into this? Because there are always assumptions. You, you can't get anything done without making assumptions. Um, and so you make some assumptions about who your audience is or what they're doing, what they care about. And then you go, okay, if all of these assumptions are true, this product works great. Now, if any of these assumptions are wrong, does the product still work? Is there a major break? Is it going to be okay? And if it's not, is there a, a change you can make to make it work better? So that's a really basic one that I think people aren't asking enough. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons they're not asking enough is that we all get trained to focus on the positive outcomes. What's the desired end goal? And when you do that, you kind of get those blinders on and it's really easy to forget about what might happen when it doesn't work. So that's, that's another one that I think is just anybody can do that. And you don't even have to have a huge amount of power to do that. It can be hard to speak up on a team if you don't, but anybody can do that in their work, at least within their own personal work. Thanks to David Dylan Thomas and Sarah Walter-Betcher for their insights. 
Make sure to subscribe to the Cognitive Bias podcast. It's so interesting to learn about these quirks of the brain. And the episodes are so short, mostly 5 to 10 minutes long. A perfect bite-sized bit of information to listen to while you're out for a small errand or waiting for a bus, for instance. Sarah's book, Design for Real Life, that came out at A Book Apart, is of course still available. And her new book, Technically Wrong, will be out on October 10. Keep an eye out on her website, sarahwb.com. That's Sarah with no H, wb.com. We'll also link to her website and that of Dave on our website, efficientlyeffective.fm. Thanks for listening. It was amazing to meet a few of you at Confab Intensive in Denver and at Web Expo in Prague last month. If you're new to the podcast, hello and welcome. I hope you liked it so far. Comments and feedback are always welcome through our website, efficientlyeffective.fm and on Twitter at EffectivePod. Want to help Efficiently Effective grow? Easy! Rate us in iTunes and tell someone about us. Thanks to Sanders Pospol for editing help. Music by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Licensed on the Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Efficiently Effective is a production by The Duchess.